Aloha, friends. This season of the Voyagers podcast is brought to you by our friend Jonathan Yudis, realtor and real estate advisor at Maui Dream Properties. Have you got Maui on your mind? I've been living here for four years, and I've heard that island fever is a thing, but frankly, I wake up every day and I feel like I'm in a dream. It's a wonderful place to call home, to raise a family, to build community, or just to visit. If you share this dream, you'll want to go to MauiDreamProperties.com and drop Jonathan a note of hello. Whether buying or selling or investing, Jonathan will help you navigate the real estate market on Maui because, without exception, he serves his clients with passion, enthusiasm, and excellence. You can trust him to put you and your family's needs first. If you're thinking about moving to one of the most beautiful islands in the world, check out MauiDreamProperties.com and drop Jonathan a hello and get started on making your dream a reality. I'm David Glenn Taylor. This is the Voyagers Podcast. Do you remember the first time you saw a cell phone? I do. My friend Josh's dad had one. It was one of those big bricks with the super stiff antenna. He explained what it was and what it did, and at the time, I didn't really see the point of carrying the thing around. It was heavy, and I'm sure it was expensive. And I didn't have a clue what its existence meant. I mean, I didn't even ask the question, wow, if this is here now, what's coming next? I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm frustrated that I didn't even ask the question. It's like I wasn't even curious about life at that time. I was a kid, right? I was more into the thing that was right in front of me, which is relatively normal for being a kid. I wasn't curious about what could be or what was possible. Now I find myself in midlife and I am infinitely curious. And I also really admire those people who have made their life's work out of following their curiosities. They pursue the deep questions and they're laying the groundwork for the rest of humanity. Most of us go about our lives thinking about what we're having for dinner and what's on TV that night. Then there are people like Dr. Ben Gertzel. I'm just going to say this now. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone as intelligent and prescient as Ben. Our conversation left me a bit numb in the brain. It was kind of funny, actually. After the interview, I went and found my wife, and I just said, can I talk for a bit? I need to process everything we just discussed. So she let me talk, and I blabbed about autonomous superintelligence and robots and robots inventing robots, and I must have gone on for a good hour. She's a very patient woman. Did I mention that? So, let me prepare you just a bit for this episode. Ben Gertzel is one of the world's leading experts in the field of artificial intelligence. His current work is focused on what is known as artificial general intelligence, and he spends a good amount of time contemplating what he calls the singularity. I'm going to let him explain what that means, because even as I sit here recording this, I haven't fully wrapped my head around everything we talked about, but I am trying. When I finally was able to sit down with Ben on Zoom, his wife had recently given birth to a beautiful baby girl, which is as unartificial as intelligence can get, right? So Ben graciously dished on both life as a new father and life on the forefront of technological innovation. Just had a baby. Yeah, yeah, my wife did. Uh, <laughs> two, two weeks ago, it's a beautiful little girl. It's my fifth child, but uh, three of them are grown up by now. We've got a three-year-old and a two-week-old at, at home now. Plenty of distractions from uh, building superhuman AGI and uh, <laughs> launching a positive singularity. 
Yeah, no, it's a completely different. So I, I, I know we're, we want to talk about artificial intelligence, but I'm very curious about your parenting journey. You've got to have a really different reflection now on having kind of starting another little journey with little ones and having older ones. How are you mentally like kind of wrapping your head around this experience? I, I think uh, definitely my my life is completely different than when when i had kids before because i'm i'm much busier with work now th than i was and i have sure. a career with more scheduled things so it's right. it's uh, more complicated uh, logistically than i was 23 when i had my first kid right, right. I mean, I was, so it was a my, my life was a little, little less, less hyper, <laughs> hyper organized. Yeah, right. I'd say, fortunately, I, I, I get along with my wife now much better than was the case with the, my first wife, who was sure. the mother of my other kids. So sure, that's yeah. an, another, another significant change this time around. But yeah, yeah. I, I think what's interesting to me, sort of from a more abstract view, that this time around is like in the. In the intervening decades, I've been on many long journeys of consciousness yeah. expansion and meditation and the exploration of different states of consciousness and so forth. Right. Um, I really am acutely aware this time around of how much little kids are like in the moment all the time, right? Yeah. So if, if you enter into a shared moment with a young child, if you really do it and not like worrying about all the other stuff that you could be doing instead and all right. the work you have to do, I mean, that, then you're, you are living in, in the moment along with them in, in a quite yeah. a profound sense, right? right. Which is, 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 is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's valuable to, you know, take that for, for what it offers, which is uh, not what our society is necessarily pushing you to, to do because right. we're so hurried and like a uh, time sliced among, yeah, among, among different things. So yeah. Yeah, I'm more reflective and self-aware of the different like states of consciousness right. and modes of interaction involved in dealing with very young developing minds than, yeah. than when my older kids were little. But I, I think back then, though, I was more in a phase of trying to understand how the human mind works with a view toward porting that knowledge to AI design, because I was sort of early in my journey of trying to figure out how to make thinking machines. So right. I was scrutinizing my first child's, like every other insert movement with like, what does this imply about the underlying learning and cognitive dynamics? <laughs> Right. Whereas by now, rightly or wrongly, I've convinced myself I pretty much un under understand all that. Like I, I've, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a theory sure. of how cognitive development and and learning and reasoning work, and I'm I'm pretty far along in trying to implement AGI systems according to this theory. So it's sure. still super interesting to watch how each young mind grows. Of of course, but I'm not I'm not thinking of my kids now quite as much as uh, like research <laughs> subjects in in the cognitive science experiment. Yeah. I'm imagining imagining a conversation with your adult kids and going, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's there's probably so, some. So Zara, my, my oldest son, who was my number one research subject. I mean, he's he's doing a PhD in in AI himself now. Is he really I mean, not so cognitive science around? He's studying application of machine learning to automatic theorem proving. So like trying to make a AI mathematician. He has a young daughter as well now. So I'm, I'm a grandpa also. But so no he, kidding. He, anyway, Zara is definitely on on board with uh, with children as as cognitive science research subjects <laughs> right he kind of has to be no that's funny so you so you you're a grandfather a new father again and you also have a kind of a cohort co-worker some you know, one of your sons is actually kind of following your footsteps and then I, I would really like to have it, have us all at a, at a table, just buy a whiskey and just just listen to the, what that conversation sounds like. It sounds fascinating. That <laughs> would be good fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My dad is a, well, now recently retired sociology professor. And I actually, 
I got him a bit into AGI and and the singularity and 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 so forth. Also, right. we had at least one paper published with myself, my dad, and and, and eldest son. So. Totally. <laughs> my yeah. my wife my wife is an AI PhD also actually. Although is she she's really? Been on, on, <laughs> she's been on on the extended maternity leave basically sure. since uh, since our three year old was born. But yeah. uh, I mean that's how we met. She does computational linguistics, so to trying to make computers actually understand language, which is still substantially uncharted territory, re- regardless of uh, progress with the deep neural nets and so forth. Can I ask you to just explain to the audience what the difference between just the basic difference between AI and AGI, you know, artificial sure. intelligence versus artificial general intelligence, which has been more your focus now? So AI is a is a big umbrella, right? And I think I think that's okay. I mean, the boundaries of one science and another don't have to be precisely delineated any more right. than it, like it doesn't matter where the boundary between chemistry and biology is or chemistry and physics. I mean, it's all science. Right. Right? So AI pretty broadly is just trying to get computers to do stuff that seems smart to people or that we think is smart when people do it right and so the boundary between ai and just highly capable software or advanced statistics is not necessarily that clear and i don't think that's it's not a real problem i mean Mm -hmm. that what the what the software does is more interesting than what label you attach to it artificial general intelligence is a, a a term that refers to AI programs that, you know, think with more of the breadth and scope and generality that humans do, right? And if you think about what most AI programs in the world today do, they're they're what you would call narrow AIs. I mean, they're AIs that do highly specific things within well-defined contexts. So it could be driving a car, driving a truck. It could be like diagnosing a disease based, based on someone's genomics data. It could be proving a math theorem, recognizing a face but in a sense these ais don't understand what they're doing even as well as people do i mean we usually don't know what we're doing either but we know but we know better than the ai right so when like when a narrow ai is recognizing someone's face it doesn't know what a face is it doesn't know that a face is part of the body of an of an organism or something right It, it doesn't yeah, let alone knowing that it's recognizing a face so that some organization can check whether some person can buy something or get into a door or something like that. Sure. Right. It doesn't solve its narrow tasks in the broader context. It just solves a defined problem and right. is then plugged into that broader context. And I right. mean, that's something to do. I mean, these use, these are useful systems that we're deploying in the world now with narrow AI systems, sure. just as many other unintelligent engineered systems are very useful yeah but humans have an ability to deal with the unknown unknowns right and i mean we can we can come to grips with situations that are different than we were evolved for or different than we were educated for and we can sort of adapt think on our feet then by hook or by crook like deal with a new situation sure sometimes with creativity imagination and style right and uh, that And sometimes awkwardly and, 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 and badly. But getting an AI system that can really extend beyond its training and history and programming and kind of imaginatively tap dance around to deal with new situations, we're not there yet, right? right. And a lot of this is generalization ability because you're always going based on what you learned, but how far can you extrapolate what, what you learned to new things, right? right. I mean, because yeah. it's it's not like human imagination is always radical novelty in the sense that it had no connection to anything that came before. It's right. taking what you learned and did before and combining it in 
you know, creative new ways. Right. And yeah. th this is in very prosaic statistical terms. It's like generalization beyond your training data. Right. right. So yeah. You have AIs that can do that, but that that's, that's what's anyway meant by AGI, artificial general intelligence. Right. And of course the general intelligence is a reference to the G factor, which is what psychologists call the IQ, I, IQ coefficient, right? It's G right. for general intelligence. Yeah. So that's, Although the human IQ test in itself isn't probably very useful for artificial intelligences. No, you'd have the to... The concept that inspired it is, is relevant. You'd have to invent a whole IQ for AGIs. Like yeah, because IQ probably. test is, is in, in many ways, it would be too easy for, for, for an AI because some things that... Yeah strain our visual perception or memory are trivial for an AI, right? You could design a different IQ for AIs, but in the end, to me, that's not that interesting. Like mm -hmm. I, I talked about what I called before about the robot college student test. Like if I could make a robot that would go to MIT and, uh, you know, do the exact same processes as the human students and graduate. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's more interesting to me than an IQ test, right? I mean, right. you are right. taking, you're taking exams. Yeah. And they're made up on each semester by the professors. Yeah. But you're also informally understanding the instructions. Yeah. You're carrying out group projects, right? I mean, right. you're you're doing intellectual work integrated in, in the fabric of human society. And that's, yeah. uh, it's not that that's necessarily harder or more important than the pure intellectual work, but it's that combination that's important, right? Because yeah. it's really about understanding of context. The, the generalization both requires and enables an understanding of the broader context in which an individual task is framed. I found, you know, in learning about you and, and, you know, watching, you know, just about everything there was on the internet, which was considerable about your work. Yeah, I found that you tend to think around problems in ways that maybe the rest of us don't even really think around. And that when you're talking about AGI, you're talking about creating machines that are thinking around things, including itself. And this, this idea of artificial intelligence, inventing artificial intelligence. People tend to wonder, am I supposed to be afraid of this? Am I supposed to, is this something that is, is fearful? Because when we start talking about technologies that can go to school, you know, get a PhD and, and in theory can then learn from that and become more intelligent and that, that we can get to a point where those intelligences are far beyond what humans can do and humans can invent. You're an optimist, it seems, about this. Like you feel like we can create something and we can push this in a, in a direction that we can push technology in a direction that's really, really helpful for humanity. But I've watched a bunch of other stuff where people are just terrified of where it can take us. Like what is your perspective today on what AI can do and what it should do and how can we kind of encourage it in that direction? You know, if I try to be a pure rationalist about the broad question of the future of AI, I come to the conclusion that, you know, we have a radical uncertainty and lack of knowledge. Like we're in the position of like a bunch of apes watching what these new humans are doing in our, in our, our savanna and jungle or, or say the first people to invent language. And then they're, they're just stringing sentences together for the first time. And then they're trying to project what this new invention of language is going to lead to. And they're never going to foresee like Facebook and the differential calculus and so forth. Right. So they're in their cave saying for the first time, hey, there's a big mammoth over there. Let's go kill it. Right. right. So I mean, right. we're... We're in a position where we have no idea what the hell is going to happen after we have machines much smarter than us. They may uncover new laws of physics. They may 
they may figure out how to communicate with the aliens eminent in the quantum vibrations of our molecules, right? I mean, they may turn us all into new hard drives for, for themselves, or, 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 or they may, like, you know, turn the earth into like a utopic terrarium for us to in, in, enjoy ourselves. Right. We may get to mind upload and become like superhumans experiencing, you know, currently incomprehensible levels of, uh, of bliss as well as intelligence. Right. I mean, we just, there's a lot of possibilities. We don't know, we can't know. And if you look at it that way, the, the orientation that someone has toward what's going to happen once AGIs become superhuman, it's as much about that person's own personality and, and orientation as, right. as, as it is about the rational facts, right? And I, I, I'm an optimistic person. So I'm, I'm not optimistic about everything. I, I wasn't optimistic about the Trump presidency, for example. So, <laughs> but uh, although I was optimistic he would be voted out, which was was, was right. what happened. I tend to be a half glass full type of person sure. about everything. On the other hand, in a professional context, I like to pair myself with pessimistic people. My because, because I because I'm. Not only pessimistic people, but I, I tend to be over-optimistic about how much time a resource it will take to do something. It's it's nice to have someone else who's pessimistic about it, and then you can have some right. some dialectic, and, and then then you become realistic, right? So from right. from that standpoint, like I think it's it's probably good that humanity has some people who are pessimistic and paranoid and 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 <laughs> worried about. AGI. I mean, I think they're they're probably not basically correct, but they're going to highlight some worries that are real and that, that we can then work to, to palliate. Right. I would say also, while from a rational view, I think we just can't know. Right. From a more, say, spiritual or non-rational or, or intuitive view, I do feel a deep confidence that humanity is is moving toward something which is pretty amazing and and positive i even feel some sympathy for terence mckenna's view that he put forward that like he he saw super intelligent minds after the singularity were reaching back retrocausally and implanting stuff in our minds to to help guide us toward a positive singularity, right? Now that's, you can't say that's a non-scientific idea. I mean, because you can have reverse causation in general relativity theory. It certainly is a concept for which there is no scientific basis at, 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 the, at this moment, <laughs> at the time. right? No. But uh, on a purely sort of personal, spiritual, like heart level, I mean, I, I have a strong positive feeling that you know, humanity is going to work through a lot of difficulty and pain and suffering. Right. And, and we're going to get towards towards something that's on the whole pretty amazing as, as the end result of, of, all, of all this uh, technological development and, you know, human psychological and societal disruption. So right. I'd say I'm, I'm always sort of triangulating between the rational and the sort of uh, spiritual intuitive perspective when thinking right. about these things i mean partly because the rational perspective doesn't tell you enough to guide your actions right like you, right. Right. you don't need a spiritual intuition about whether two plus two equals four so you, you don't bother with that right right but, uh, it's pretty clear within the context that we live in, there's one direction. But I mean, with AI at the present time, it's very, very subtle. I mean, even if you decide developing AI is too risky, Chinese government's developing it, Google, Google's right. developing it, yeah. Putin 
is developing it, right? So yeah. then you can take yourself out of the loop, but you're not taking humanity out of the loop of moving very rapidly toward AI. And mm. then if if I, as an AI researcher and entrepreneur, don't put myself behind developing like democratic, decentralized AI, you know, what, what's the main of society focusing on? It's AI for selling, killing, spying, and gambling, right? I mean, right. so it's... it's uh, there's that happening now, right? So the question now isn't, should we develop advanced AI or, or shouldn't we? It's not even, should we try to develop AGI or shouldn't we? Because I mean, Google, Facebook, and, and uh, Putin are all trying to develop AGI. You know, how, how do we direct the human species thrust toward practical AI and toward AGI development? Like, do we put our energy into developing it into a beneficial way? And right. if so, like, according to what? What definition of beneficial? So it's a good argument that we should all, even just even a normal citizen should be behind or, or be putting our, our efforts or energy or even our prayers into developing kind of like you, what you've called a benevolent, you know, AGI, something that I think it's benefits. humanity is in a very bizarre situation in, in in the sense that I mean we're in my view we're very close to technological singularity which could either have humongous positive consequences or humongous negative consequences. And, and what do you mean by singularity? So Werner Vinge, the scientific the science fiction writer, mm -hmm. he introduced the concept of a technological singularity. It was then taken up and popularized by my friend Ray Kurzweil, myself, and a bunch of others. But the basic idea is a singularity is a point when the rate of scientific and technological progress is coming along so fast that it appears roughly infinite to the human perception, right? So imagine like, a, you know, your smartphone is making 10 new Nobel Prize worthy discoveries every five seconds, right? I mean, so then, I mean, that's a different order of progress than what we're seeing right now. But if you plot the curves, that's what we're working toward. So, I mean, it's not that progress in every domain is exponential. Like, I mean, shirts and hats are about the same as they were when I was a little kid. Um, On the other hand, <laughs> not quite, but pretty close. Yeah. You know, computers, nanotechnology, genomics, all these things are, they're progressing faster and faster each year than they did before. AI certainly is. And I think this is going to continue. So what this means is we're probably on the verge, meaning years to decades away from creating engineered minds that are smarter than our evolved minds, right. from curing death and disease through molecular biology and other sorts of, uh, of uh, technologies, from curing material scarcity at, at the human level of, of need via 3D printers and uh, nano assemblers and so forth. So we're so close to this, we can see how this could literally kill us all or, or worse, it, it could enable some like psychopath to mind load all of us into a computer simulation of Christian hell and burn us there in like virtual bubbling oil for a billion years. Or on the other hand, it could give us like, you know, infinite bliss and creative success and, sure. you know, social, intellectual, spiritual success, whatever we want. While we're so close to this sort of bifurcation point, humanity is spending most of its resources on, on incredibly stupid stuff, like fighting over areas of land, fighting over rich, which religion to believe in, or like vying to make more and more chocolatey chocolates and to lie <laughs> about which additives you add to those chocolatey chocolates. <laughs> I mean, it's like, imagine humanity 
he's on, on a, a boat in a river that's going fast. And up ahead, the river forks in two ways. One leads to the Garden of Eden. The other leads to a waterfall that, that's going to smash you. Mm. And some folks on the boat are trying to build oars that you can use to steer the boat. But meanwhile, no, no one wants to give them to wood to build the oars to steer the boat because they, they're using all the wood to make like decorative ornaments and, uh, and sex toys and little tokens. <laughs> so I mean, that's, that, that's pretty much the situation humanity's in now. You just described um, something, and we, I mean, we can frame it in a comical way, but like you're describing something that, that you go to work every day. And this is what you're wrestling with. These are the these are the, the problems you're wrestling with. This is the, the the ideas. So you're one of the guys who's essentially driving that boat. You know, yeah, I'm right? trying to. I mean, right. who is driving the boat that humanity is in? No, nobody is, right? I mean, right. there right. that's one thing you realize when you grow up. Like, you know, the, there's no Jewish banking conspiracy. There's no Marxist-style ruling class quite as it was formulated. Yeah. There's actually nobody in charge, right? It's a bunch of individual actors pursuing their own narrow agendas and then humanity is self-organizing in a certain direction and i among many others i'm trying to modulate that self-organization in a a beneficial direction which is is uh is not very easy but yet we live in an era when injecting the right technologies at the right time into the right communities can have a huge impact look at the look at the impact that linux has had right i mean without linus torvalds and richard stallman and those guys all computers will be running on proprietary operating systems and instead they're not which has led to like open source hardware open source robotics which is all running on linux it's it's why iran can be on the internet now even though the u.s doesn't like them very much right so I, i mean i mean by injecting the right tech at the right time with the right vibe into the right community, you can actually guide the self-organization of, of humanity in, in meaningful ways, which is quite humbling and, and exciting and fascinating. Yeah. Even going back to the beginning of our conversation, looking at you have your son doing the same type of work. It feels almost like <laughs> the, the parallels to like religious kind of understanding of bringing, bringing people along kind of kind of preaching a gospel of sorts of positivity towards towards this you know being the optimist and saying hey we need this it reminds me of you know Deepak Chopra talks about how the world works in these two cycles right there's there's creativity and there's entropy right and they're both spinning and he said that, that creativity is always one step ahead of entropy and he, so that's the optimistic view right that, but they're both spinning and we have to we have to understand them both and keep an eye on both and then we choose well it is day. the I mean, Creativity creates more entropy than anything else, right? <clears throat> I mean, evolution evolution is the most powerful creative engine we know, but it's incredibly wasteful and, and creates a huge amount of entropy in, 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 in doing it, it, its work, right? So, these, right. I mean, the, these are really just two aspects of the same process of reorganizing information, that, I think. So when you, when you create, your reor- when creativity happens, you know, information is being reorganized in more complexly patterned ways. Mm-hmm. But that process is resulting in other information becoming organized in less patterned ways, which is right. which is en- entropy creation. And this does happen in, in cyclic waves on, on multiple layered timescales, right? right. And, and getting the timing of innovations right with these various nested waves is 
is is very important for having having impact. And right. it's, the, the the other thing is stuff that looks like entropy and noise to us in the moment sometimes looks highly ordered and patterned in in hindsight. So we have to be pretty humble about when something is just meaningless chaos or when it's like the early stages of something amazing or terrible that that's crystallizing and we, and we weren't right. we weren't able to to see that yet. Right. right. So that but many people have said the singularity is like the rapture of the nerds. Right. Like this, <laughs> this, this is a it's like in the in the year 1000 when the the Anabaptists gathered on a mountaintop waiting for the the orgiastic chiliasm like for the the heavens to open up and and yeah. and, and the they wouldn't mind that they'd given away all, the, all their possessions because it was judgment day and they'd right. be judged good right so i mean it's funny to view the singularity that way and I think, of course, there's a psychological parallel and that some people really are looking for the singularity to like free them from all the pain and suffering of their life. But right. I think it, if you look at it more deeply, you see like religions and scientific theories and technology disciplines like these, these all in a way emerge from the same like collective human psyche and, and the same properties of, of human human brains, right? I mean, right. The, the religious mythos and then a scientific theory or an engineering plan, like in, in the end, these all manifest the same ways of, of human thinking and, and, right. and, and human group organization. And it's not too surprising these are unfolding according to the same the same rhythm mm -hmm. and sort of working with the peculiar self-delusional systems that, that people operate under Mm -hmm. versus trying to break out of them and then and, and do things in the in sort of in ways that are less tied to humans inherited physiology and culture i mean this yeah. is, this is a big dilemma in in a lot of ways right so yeah. if you look at agi design you can think about how to design a thinking machine that would be optimal by some mathematical criterion right but then could that machine learn from people that well could it relate to people yeah. You know, let, let alone learn to embody the human values any, any of us feel, feel important, right? Sure. Not, not necessarily, because there's a lot of potential kinds of sort of mathematical AGI minds you, you could create. So sure. you want to make AGIs that are close enough to human to really understand humans and to sort of partner with us in co-developing the world. Right. But yet you don't want them to share all the frailties, weaknesses, and, and the asininities of, of, of humanity. Right. Because a super intelligent, super powerful human is quite likely going to be be a, a very bad thing, right? You want your AGIs yeah. to be more rational and more compassionate than most humans are, yet to share enough human cognitive architecture to work together with us, right? Sure. And and that's a very subtle point, given that we have no comprehensive, coherent theory of any form of general intelligence, be it human or, or artificial. We're trying to work out that theory alongside building stuff. When you are, you're an old man, we fast forward in Ben Gertzel. I'm, I'm already an old man. <laughs> Can I ask how old you are you? I'm 54. 54, that's not, you're young, you're young. If you, yeah, if you died today, everybody would be like. I mean, I mean, I remember when Frank Zappa died at age 50, I was like, well, he's lived a long life. That's, a, <laughs> you know, that's pretty old already. Now, right. now yeah. I realize he was just starting his career, right? Just starting. Yeah, just starting. I, 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 my father died when I he was forty four, I think forty three, forty four, and I remember everybody at a funeral, even when I was twelve, and I remember at his funeral, everybody saying he was so young, he was so young, he was so young, and me thinking well, he was not young, you know, he was this old man, yeah. you know. 
And now that I'm 40, 44 myself, I'm looking at it going, yeah, I feel like I got my whole life ahead of me. You yeah, know? but if I you, certainly feel that way. I mean, yeah, exactly. You look, the, you look at the singularity. I mean, if we're going to achieve immortality, then I mean, now we're infants, right? We're, right. we're still basically toddlers and, and we're, uh, we got the tremendous percentage of our life still ahead of us. Totally. Yeah, we were, my wife and I were talking about this morning, we were talking about how, you know, because we were talking about currency and how and why, you know, I was a baseball card collector when I was a kid. And we were talking about like cryptocurrencies and regular currencies and what makes this piece of paper worth something and what creates value, right? Like how value and, you know, and we were talking about how the one thing that we all have is time and time and units of time as thought of as currency and how some of us spend that time efficiently and some of it's some of us frivolously and some recklessly. And I was thinking about AI and I was thinking about AGI, AGIs that are invented and going, they have the same units of time as that the humans did. That's like the equivalent thing. It's just that their ability to use those units of time in hyperspeed and in so in incredibly fast ways. If we got to a point where the AGI was actually contemplating, am I using my time wisely? If we could, get, if we had an actual, you know, AGI that was thinking that way, is that the, is that ultimately very simply put, is that the goal? Well, I think to me, the goal is to create something that is more generally intelligent and more compassionate right. than humans are, and then let it figure out the next step, right? So, what, I mean, whether worrying about using your time wisely is what that mind will think about, and I, I don't know, because that, that may be that may be a manifestation of scarcity thinking, which which we're, we're wrapped up in now, right? Like, a, oh, if you can yeah. if you can mint time by a control over the space time continuum then using time wisely is as a whole different sense, right? Uh, completely. Okay. So that you, you just, you did a, the smart thing around it. You see, that's the thing I wasn't even thinking about. So you now, now fast forward, Ben Gertzel is now an old man and he's looking back on his life. How are you going to be satisfied as a human I'm, being? So I'm, I'm satisfied already. So I, are you? I mean, sa- satisfying me is... Why, why are you satisfied when there's so much uncertainty? I really want to understand that. Well, I mean, uncertainty, there's always a lot of uncertainty. So that uncertainty, if uncertainty makes you unsatisfied you're going to be a very unhappy person because we don't you don't fundamentally know that you're not like a brain in a vat being deluded by some evil scientist connecting wires to that brain to make to make you think that you're living in this world right i mean we have radical uncertainty about our condition at at every single moment most people ignore that by habit and culture right so i mean i think the uncertainty of how the singularity will come out is not necessarily greater than the uncertainty about whether our world and bodies actually exist or we're just like brains in a vat or a butterfly dreaming we're we're a human or something right? right so I mean, I, I think if you really come to terms with what our existence is, then you have to come to terms with utterly radical uncertainty, right? So, I mean, I think I think if we all woke up five seconds from now and realized that this Earth Earthrin was a video game and we're actually like seven-eyed aliens who'd been playing the Earth simulation game, right. I would feel a bit disruptive, but I'd probably be less shocked than most people. Because right. I, I, I sort of come to terms with, with radical uncertainty anyway. I think if you don't have that frame of mind, as a human, you're likely to think irrationally about the singularity and the various choices we have to make. Because, it, I mean, relative to the world we live in and the society we're in and the stage we're at, I mean, these are very big and very hard decisions that humanity has to make now. Right. And we have a tendency as humans to make these via cognitive and emotional biases or, or based on, you know, irrational balancing of goals on different timescales or just based on like social status considerations or something. 
Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think being comfortable with the radical uncertainty is like one early step you need to pass through in order to operate effectively in terms of steering humanity toward a positive singularity. But of course, it's not enough because you, you need to accept that radical uncertainty and then, you know, do the best you can to navigate with the, the probabilities that you can you can assess, right? Yeah. Because you, you could also say, well, it's all so uncertain, like, screw it. And I'll just like relax on the beach and enjoy myself because nobody knows what's going on or, 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 or what's going to happen anyway. So you got to accept there's a lot of uncertainty, make some provisional hypotheses and assumptions, and then plot a path forward based on, on those, right? And yeah. that doesn't seem to be what the political leaders of the world or the captains of industry are really doing it at the moment. I think the world is run mostly by people who, in as much as it's run by anyone, which perhaps fortunately isn't that much, it's largely self-organizing, but to right. the extent it's led by anyone, it is largely led by people who do not have a solid understanding of the current situation of humanity like uh, right. from a cultural psychological social or, or technological or science point of view right. which is a is a strange and, and and disturbing thing i mean folks like trump or, or say bolsonaro in brazil are right. obvious indication of that like these people are just very ignorant even relative to the run-of-the-mill politicians right but even say putin or xi jinping are far more knowledgeable and competent than those people. I mean, these are very bright people mm -hmm. who are actually trying to understand the world and plot a path forward according to it. But even these guys who are super smart and pretty rational are thinking according to relatively narrow points of view. And you look at the Google guys, like the Google founders, I'm willing to believe these are all basically good-hearted people, even though the media might, might say otherwise. Sure. And they want to make a lot of money, but they also already have a lot of money, right? right but they, yeah. they, they genuinely want to make a positive impact on the world with what they're doing. Right. But point of view within which they're thinking is quite narrow, right? And right. this comes down to why I think AGI should be developed in a democratic and decentralized way. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I think, way more broad-minded than the national leaders or corporate leaders out, out there today. Sure. Partly because I haven't gone through the narrowing process you would go through through right. doing those jobs for decades, right? Yeah. I mean, still I'm like one guy, right? So right. I think if if the AGI comes out of the collaborative thinking and acting of you know a broad community of people, like in every country on the planet, from all different socioeconomic strata, from different cultures, right. different economic levels. I mean, if you can do that right, you're going to get a lot more high quality emergent collective thinking and feeling into shaping the AI mind than you're going to get if any one corporation or government or a small elite group does it, right? I mean, of course, there's a lot of ways that could, could go wrong also, but I I think I think that's a if you parse through all the uncertainty, I think that's a better place to bet, right? I mean, yeah, and for similar reasons to why for a, a government, I would bet on democracy, even though it's horribly fucked up versus <laughs> a, a, a dictatorship, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the mass mind has a lot of horror and stupidity to it. But right. in the end, the collective sort of computing and, and feeling and intuiting power of the mass mind is, is still, it, that, that's what brought us here. That, that's what developed culture and technology and science, right? And I mean, that, 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 that's, uh, that's the best bet we have, singularity-wise. Right. Two more things. Yeah, what do you think is going to be on your gravestone? What does it say? I'm not going to have a gravestone, man. I'm going to live forever. <laughs>
And you're serious about it when you say that. I'm serious. Yeah. Can you give me a two minute explanation about why why that's the case? Well, I, I mean, there's a notion of longevity escape velocity, which has been called <laughs> the Methuselahity also, which, which basically means, you know, if if by living, if by taking a pill to live 20 more years, that would make me long enough, live long enough that during those 20 years, someone else will develop a pill that'll let me live 50 more years. Right. Then in those 50 years, a robot will develop a pill that'll let me live a thousand more years and, and it keeps going, right? So that, that's, just... that's the basic logic. I mean, it may not be pills. It may be scanning your mind out of your brain and putting it into some quantum computer substrate, right? But but right. I mean, it's a, basically, that's why Ray Kurzweil titled one of his books, Live Long Enough to Live Forever, right? right. I, I mean, if you once if we make it to the singularity, then it's no longer a technical or scientific obstacle to live essentially essentially forever. It's right. it's a sort of social and, and management obstacle. I was reading this morning about the theory of the Dyson sphere, right? This this idea yeah. to build a Dyson sphere in space, and then that that is where we could upload all this kind of. Well, yeah. Did you did you read the book The Physics of Immortality by Frank Tipler? So what, what he points out is, if we believe current theories of physics, the universe will hit a big crunch eventually. Right. On the other hand, he points out if you arrange the various galaxies in the universe in the right configuration, you can make that big crunch happen in such a way that from the subjective timeline of people living in the universe, they feel like they're living forever because of the way time is distorted during that, during that big crunch. So we, we just got to live long enough that we can do that, that like galaxy scale re-engineering, like make the big engines to push the star systems around so the universe collapses. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you can, uh, that's a fascinating book. I'm definitely going to pick it up. All right. So last thing, we do a thing at the end where I just ask the guest on the show to just leave the audience with a blessing. And it can be whatever, whatever, wise saying, prayer, whatever it is that you you would like to leave for the audience. That's it. Well, that's 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 an interesting one. I'm I'm tempted to do a, a Zen blessing and just like Still. stare them in the eye without saying anything for a period of time. But I I, I think, uh, you know, the when I analyzed human values from a, a sort of uh, philosophy meets AI point of view, mm -hmm. the conclusion I came to is there were three very abstract human values that, that I could isolate and want to program into the AI's mind to build into his architecture. And the, these are joy, growth, and, and choice. So if we can if we can get the AI to experience joy, growth, and choice, and foster humanity's joy, growth, and choice, we're a significant way along the path we need need, need to be on. So what, what I want to do is just to project maximal joy, growth, and choice onto, onto all of you who are listening. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's it. We did it. All right. No, this was, this was good fun. That was really, man, I, Ben, and through everything you went through the last couple of weeks and how, how your life has been, thank you so much for taking the time. I just super appreciate it, man. No, it's, it's actually gone well. I was a bit dubious because we were supposed to have a mother's helper come in to help my wife with the kids today, but she called out sick. So I was like, oh, no. am I going to hear screaming in the background? But they're actually, <laughs> they're, they're doing fine. So good. It's all, yeah. all good. Voyager's podcast is produced by Sugar Sled Productions in Kula on the island of Maui. It's hosted by me, David Glenn Taylor. If you're like me and you want to go down an AI rabbit hole right now, just go over to YouTube and search Ben Gertzel. 
You will find, among other things, clips of Ben on the Joe Rogan podcast and doing TED Talks and a host of dense discussions on the topics we touched on today. Ben's work is, even now, affecting all of us in subtle and perhaps in the future not so subtle ways. So having a guy like him out there working to push these technologies in the direction of generosity and benevolence is a beautiful thing. We wish him all the best as he pursues his curiosities and makes the future a wonderful place for all of us. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It's really appreciated. You can support the podcast through Patreon by going to voyagespodcast.com and clicking on the Patreon link up in the right-hand corner. And if you'd like to sponsor next season, just email us, david at voyagerspodcast.com. Next week on the penultimate episode of season two of the Voyagers podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with a good friend about suffering and family and love and eternity. Not light subjects, I know. But my friend has been working through cancer and a host of complications resulting from that disease and the needed treatments. And he has some things to share with us. I needed to hear them. I needed to just have a conversation with him. I hope it'll be helpful for you too. My friend and one of the real gems of this human race, Dirk Hollipy. That's next week on the Voyagers Podcast. Mahalo for listening, friends. Thank you.